Michael Katz is a professor of Russian and East European studies at Middlebury College and is the translator of several works of Dostoevsky, including Crime and Punishment and The Brothers Karamazov. This is Michael Katz. I'm Duncan Gamey. You're listening to Dunk Tank. I'm here with Michael Katz. Thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. Uh, so, Michael, you've uh, you've translated from Russian a number of books that I really would love to read in the original language. Uh, and I'm talking specifically about the works of Dostoevsky. And it, it, I'm I'm curious, first of all, do you think and I'm asking you as a, a reader and a translator, do you think there's anything that if someone doesn't know Russian, that they're just there's something inescapably lost when they read it in translation. I think it's true of any author that um, you lose something by not reading it in the original language. With Dostoevsky, I think it's less apparent because most of his novels are thematic and character-driven, not so much language-driven the way Tolstoy is. I was looking at the Nabokov that you referred to uh, last week, and Nabokov is saying something of the same, that with Dostoevsky, the themes and the characters and the plot are more important than the actual style. And I think he's right about that. And therefore, when you're translating Dostoevsky, you don't lose quite as much as you do by translating someone else. I would never translate Pushkin, for example, mm. uh, in part because most of it is poetry, and poetry is infinitely more difficult to translate than prose. But even Gogol's prose is such that you lose a lot because there's so much wordplay. Dostoevsky doesn't engage in much wordplay. There's plenty of humor, but it isn't dependent on the language. Yeah, I, and I'm curious about that then, because well, one of the things you, you mentioned that uh, Nabokov article um, that I, I was talking about, and in it, he gives, he he mentions what you said, but he also kind of criticizes Dostoevsky as an artist and says that he's like nowhere near the level of Tolstoy. And I, I don't necessarily agree with that argument, um, but I can kind of see where he's coming from, where it's like, a lot of the characters in Dostoevsky are they 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 don't really seem like real flesh and blood people. They seem like constructs almost. Mm-hmm. And the scenes that they're in, I don't necessarily walk away with like an image of what these people look like, of what the environment they're in looks like. Uh, whereas I don't feel that way about Tolstoy. I, I like have a very clear image of what's going on. Uh, do, I mean, how do you feel about that criticism? I think that's absolutely right. It's justified. Dostoevsky never looks out of the window. He has no idea what the natural landscape is like. And although he'll describe a character's face initially, you don't get much in terms of facial expression or gestures. It's the words that count. The great Russian critic Mikhail Bakhtin said that Dostoevsky's characters are really walking ideas 
they're they have themes that they spout and very eloquently too but that's where dostoevsky's real interest is not in nature and not in personal description yeah and, and do you feel like after you know i mean w with a lifetime of reading and translating i feel like that's true of a lot of really great authors that they have great flaws where even like tolstoy had a, a criticism he he wrote an entire article criticizing Shakespeare and was like ripping apart King Lear. And a lot of the mm -hmm. criticisms he made were kind of like justified where like it, King Lear starts off with some pun of like some guy being like, I, I cannot conceive you. And the guy goes, well, this boy's mother could. And it's like, well, that's, mm -hmm. that's a dumb pun. And that, that's a dumb way to start off, but it somehow it works. I mean, what, like, do you have any idea what's going on there? Like, these are not like MFA immaculate ironed out prose and characterization, et cetera. Like, why is it still good? Well, I think he's playing a bit to the crowd uh, in Shakespeare and the joke is lame, but I imagine there was laughter from the, uh, the, the hoi polloi in the front when yeah. they were standing, crowding the stage, but it's not a very sophisticated joke. I agree with you. Sure. But in general, like, okay, taking Dostoevsky as an example, why, what about his work do you think makes it, these flaws sort of fall to the wayside? Well, I think it's the depth, the profundity of the thought. This is a book that sets big questions up. Is there a God? What is good and what is evil? How should one live one's life? If there's no God, is everything permitted? I mean, these are not small questions that his characters deal with. When Jesus reappears in the Grand Inquisitor scene, uh, that's pretty heady stuff. Jesus speaks for some 20 pages about, or not Jesus, the Grand Inquisitor speaks for some 20 pages accusing Jesus of leaving mankind in the lurch because he gives mankind too much freedom instead of giving him happiness. Give him bread, says the Grand Inquisitor. That's what we've done. Dostoevsky is much more interested in the existential freedom that Christ offers in his version. Right. Yeah, and an amazing scene. Um, when you're translating this, I mean, the, the, as you mentioned, these are big books with like big questions. And I think I had also mentioned to you when, when I reached out, um, David Foster Wallace wrote about Dostoevsky. And he said that, okay, no author these days could possibly get away with even like, like seriously posing these sorts of questions. Um, you know, you would have to do throw do so through like three layers of irony and pretend that you're not actually that interested in it. And, you know, it would almost be like embarrassing for like a, a contemporary writer to ask these questions. Um mm -hmm. not not so in his time. Is that is that more so because people in Russia at that time it was like across the board, well not across the board, but more uh religious, say, than our, our contemporary world? Absolutely. Um, 
and the questions were posed and vital questions. They still talk about them. Um, I think Russians in general tend to be much more introspective and ask big, deal with big themes. You feel like that in general, really? I think that's true in general of the of the culture. Uh, Isaiah Berlin gave a lecture once on Russian literature that I heard, and he said, imagine a railway car with two women sitting in it, characters out of Jane Austen's fiction, and they're having tea, and they both lift up their teacups and they're sipping their tea. Can you imagine one of Jane Austen's characters saying to another, well, my dear, is there a God or not? Or if they say, wither England, what's the fate of England? These are not questions that Jane Austen's characters ask, or George Eliot's, the great writers of the 19th century. But those are questions that Dostoevsky asks, Tolstoy asks, Right. I mean, why is there anything that's what attracts me to Russian literature? Oh, 100 percent. Because I'm mean... still interested in those big questions. But but why do you think there's something peculiar to Russia? That, I mean, it, are, are Russian writers today as interested in these kinds of questions? I'm not as familiar with contemporary Russian stuff. Yeah, I'm not either. I don't follow contemporary literature. My heart and soul are in the 19th century. Um so I really don't know. I can't answer that question for the contemporary sure. scene. I sense that right now with the war going on, um, that's going to preoccupy Russian writers for some time. And, and why don't you follow contemporary stuff? Is it just because it doesn't, it, it pales in comparison to the works of the past? <laughs> Everything that I've read suggests that it does pale in comparison. And life is short. You only have a certain amount of time yeah. to spend reading and studying. And it's the 19th century that has always attracted me for the last 50 years. I started this stuff when I was 15 years old. And I still read the same books. Now I'm translating them, teaching them, lecturing about them. But it's yeah. the same things. And do you think there's a particular reason for that? I mean, the fact that in the 1800s, yeah, this is like the peak of the novel. And nowadays, I guess, maybe film or television is ascendant. Mm -hmm. And there's more people now than there ever have been. There's more people writing now than there ever have been. You would presume that there would be still great works being produced. I mean... It, it are just the same kinds of people not writing books today as in the past? We don't know. You know, uh, great books usually take a while before they're recognized. And there may be things that are written that 50 years from now, we're going to say, these are the classic works of the 21st century. Right. Yeah, at Oxford, when I was a student there, you weren't allowed to study anything that was less than 50 years old. It would just automatically assume that something needed 50 years. Virginia Woolf wasn't included in 
syllabi because she wasn't old enough. Hmm. You had to wait 50 years before you could tell whether anything was really worth studying. Well, we know that Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are worth studying. Right. Yeah, it's a much better heuristic to see, okay, what's what's hung on. Um, why for you, when you're translating this guy, a lot of, um, you mentioned how the language is not as important and the, the gestures aren't, aren't so much as important. And, um, a lot of the characters in his work, sometimes they seem to, uh, uh, they seem to do things like they fly at each other or like they, you know, shake their fists and things like that. Uh, is there a cultural, um, gap in understanding there that you know maybe russian people would understand oh this this gesture what this means uh or, or is it points back to what we talked about earlier of maybe a, a flaw in the work of um these characters not being as uh, gesturally real it's a good question duncan um the the fact is that in dostoevsky's prose in general not just in the brothers Things never happen slowly. Dostoevsky doesn't believe in the word gradually. Everything in Dostoevsky is sudden, suddenly, all of a sudden. And he believes that the intuition, the leap the soul makes when it comes in contact with another person, that's the most valuable thing about you. There's a wonderful scene in Notes from Underground when the underground man has been lecturing the prostitute with the heart of gold, Lisa, and she stops listening to him and instead opens her arms and is ready to accept him and give him unconditional love. And he can't do it. He can't accept it. And she, what she does is she gestures suddenly and stands up, holds out her arms, and he's paralyzed. He can't accept her unconditional love. Hmm. It, it seems like one of the things that I, I wouldn't call his works like realist um, in, in that sense. And it, it also seems like realism as a, a mode of literature uh, or as a mode of art is kind of uh, limited in the sense that there are all kinds of examples of human behavior that Dostoevsky either observed or indulged in, like his gambling addiction, that if you tried to um, just give a one-to-one a -one description of what happened, then you know, it, it would almost wouldn't work in the context of like a realist novel because these characters behavior or, or this form of human behavior is too extreme to appear real. And so in that sense yeah. of realism is almost limited because you can't capture uh, reality's extremes. And so he's departing from that to, you know, deliver something that's more than real. He writes in a letter that it's the extremities of human personality that interest him most of all. Mm. Uh, he has no inhibitions about saying that. This is what 
intrigues him. And usually when you talk about Tolstoy and talk about Dostoevsky in one sentence, you say Tolstoy is a writer of extended philosophical uh, debates, say between Pierre and Andre in War and Peace, where Dostoevsky is interested in psychology and the depth of the human personality. Nietzsche said that Dostoevsky was the only psychologist from whom he had anything to learn. That's pretty heavy praise. Yeah. And Nietzsche certainly was a fan of Dostoevsky's and influenced by him in his work. Yeah, I've heard that quote before as well. Where do you think that Dostoevsky appears in Nietzsche? Well, that quote comes from Twilight of the Idols. And I think the general concern with metaphysics, which is Nietzsche's, is characteristic of Dostoevsky. Again, questions of good and evil, of the existence of God or the death of God. This is what worried Dostoevsky, that wicked diseases coming from the West, like materialism, atheism, feminism, um, any of those wicked Western ideologies were threatening to infect Russia. And you can see in his career a progression from the city, Petersburg, where crime and punishment takes place. And in each novel, his scope gets a little broader. And then by the time we get to Karamazov, he's interested in the Russian boonies, this little town called Skataprigonevsk, Stockyard is the way it translates. And he's concerned that the disease is so contagious that this Westernism, this nihilism and atheism is infecting the Russian countryside. And the title of the first book of Karamazov is A Nice Little Family. It's attacking the fundamental institution of Russian life, the family, not just society at large. Did he see, uh, you, you mentioned feminism in there. Did he see that as a quote-unquote wicked ideology? Yes, he did. Really? Yeah. What did he say about it? <laughs> he depicts his women characters as catalysts in the action to bring out their male characters. He's not interested in women per se. Right. Women don't have ideas. The women offer love and are jealous and emotional and unstable. And that's who the women are in Karamazov. Katarina Grushenka. Grushenka who decides to seduce Alyosha and who stops only when she finds out that... Um, Father Zasima had just died, and Alyosha is in deep mourning for his beloved mentor. But Grushenka is sitting on his lap and bouncing up and down, and Alyosha is about to fall when Rakitin, 
the guy who brings Alyosha to Grushinka says, well, be, be gentle with him because he just lost his elder. And Grushinka is horrified and jumps off Alyosha's lap and uh, Alyosha is saved. She's not seduced by her at all. Hmm. But that's her role in the fiction. Right. Y- she yeah. She married Dimitri or, or, or Dimitri's father, Fyodor. Yeah, and and do you feel like that is another sort of, um, because I guess that is true, um, and and that is something that uh, Nabokov also points out, which is that, like, you know, he, at one point um, in Crime and Punishment, he puts uh, the murderer uh, and this uh, prostitute together, and they're they're kind of sort of consoling each other in some way, Mm -hmm. and it, I I felt like it worked at the time when I read it, but when he points out that like on some level, you're creating an equivalence between these two things, um, which is, uh, I, I would disagree with. I, I mean, they're, they're not the same thing. Um, and I don't think that's quite what Dostoevsky is implying, but I don't know. It, it, interesting. The, um, yeah, how, how do you feel about that, the, the treatment of women in Dostoevsky? Well, it's, as I said, they're not taken as whole human beings. They don't have ideas. They merely act as catalysts to bring out the male's characteristics. Right. So for any women who are listening who say, okay, well, fuck Dostoevsky. Uh, <laughs> like, why Why the hell would I read this guy? This well, there's a lot guy. of writers up until the 20th yeah. century who would be written off for those reasons. Feminism was not a strong suit of many 19th century writers. Yeah, the, the guys, for sure. The uh, guys, exactly. Yeah. We're not talking about Jane Austen or George Eliot or Virginia Woolf. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because he has been embraced by a lot of sort of conservative um, groups and stuff like that. And conservative voices say like, oh, love Dostoevsky. Um, But he's also been embraced by people like Noam Chomsky, who has written highly of him and speaks about the Grand Inquisitor scene as like a great exploration of power where you have this grand inquisitor uh, who's, you know, telling, you know, oh, we, you know, we, we don't want to give people freedom. That's not what they want. They just want these, these happy illusions and give them, you know, some happiness, et cetera. Um, and I guess that's the mark of a good writer that people across the political spectrum are uh, claiming him as, as their own. I mean, do, I think that's right. I think that's yeah. accurate. Do, do you see it, it kind of seems like there is, but do you see, um, do you see one of these two sides as being more, uh, I don't know, correct in claiming him as their own? Well, I think Dostoevsky can be used for different purposes. You're really not talking so much about what he is, but how he's being used. So the idea of Russia being the God-bearing people. Uh, and leading mankind to salvation, 
that is one of his constant themes that run through all of the novels. And then he develops in his last public performance, gives a speech at the uh, unveiling of a monument to Pushkin in Petersburg. And um, he talks about Russia being the leading nation that's going to take mankind. It's going to cast off all these Western ideologies and lead mankind to a true understanding of Christ. That's dangerous. And we're seeing some of it played out with Putin and his war right now. Putin is relying on not Dostoevsky, but uh, a guy named Dugan, uh, his ideologist, who's churning out this stuff about the greatness of the Russian people, historical and future, past and future. The Russian people are the great empire and will save Europe and save the world from um, homosexuality, from feminism, from all sorts of wicked liberalism in the West. Right. And in Dostoevsky's case, he famously was part of, I believe, a, a socialist group when he was younger. And he was taken to like a mock execution where he thought he was going to die. And then they called it off at the last second. And, you know, one, one guy who he was with, you know, went insane because of just the, the terror of it all and then was sent to Siberia. And you would think an experience like that would radicalize him um against sort of the russian state why why didn't it well we don't know what his true views were that he might there's one theory that says the reason he was joining the socialist circle was to gain to gather information for his novel so he could write against the socialists he hmm. wasn't doing it sincerely but he was on a fact-finding mission um there's another theory that says, well, it was beaten out of him when he went to Siberia, when he was in exile for all those years, and he discovered the true meaning of the Russian people when he met all these prisoners who were serving in exile with him. We don't know. I mean, this is, this is the biographical fallacy. There's a lot about his life that we don't know for sure. And whether he was an Orthodox Christian right from the get-go, or he had a conversion experience. Tolstoy writes about his conversion, but Dostoevsky doesn't write about his very much. So it's hard to know. Right. Yeah, that, that's an interesting premise that he went there on a fact-finding mission. Um, and, and he... When he first started off, I think his first publication was some book called like Poor Folk or something like That's that. Right. And he uh, he became like a minor literary sensation um, very early on. And right. then he's hauled off to Siberia. Do, do you see um, do you see obviously his writing matured, but do you see any like thematic uh, differences or like interests or, or differences in terms of his like interests 
literary wise in terms of his work before Siberia and after? Well, no. Um, there's a theory that says Dostoevsky really wrote one great novel his whole life. And right. he starts it and begins dealing with these same issues. The salvation of man is through Christ and through human love. And whether whatever form that takes, it comes out in each of the novels. And there are two projects that he was constantly struggling with. One is called The Atheist, and the other is called The Life of the Great Sinner. They're very serious and very similar. And he never writes either of those, but he writes five great novels, um, starting with Crime and Punishment and ending with Karamazov. Well, four and a half great novels, because one of them isn't really great. Which one? The Adolescent or the Raw Youth, it's called. Number four. And it's weak. I've tried to teach it a couple of times, and every time I do, students want to know what I'm teaching it for, and I ask myself the same question. I'm teaching it because it's there, and it's one of Dostoevsky's novels, but it's not very good. Hmm. Why is it not so good? The characters aren't well-developed. The uh, arguments are confusing. Um the it, it's not clear what the thematic intent of the novel is as opposed to his other novels that's he also he dictated uh a lot of his novels i think almost well all. he did no he dictated the gambler uh when he was under the gun for a publisher's deadline right and he hired a stenographer whom he later married. Yeah. And she became his business manager and set his uh, career on a better track. He had some money, finally. It, it, oh, okay. So he did not dictate like crime and punishment, for instance. No, 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 no. He wrote those. And you can see his wonderful manuscript pages, which are crazy, covered with all sorts of designs and right he, he writes one page is kind of circular all the scenes that just are arranged around the a, a, a circle well it, he he was writing under the gun though a lot wasn't he to, to sort of yes, pay off was. debts to pay off debt although once he married his second wife he did a lot better she was very good at managing his accounts. Didn't give him any money to gamble. He was yeah. not a drunkard. Right. So, okay. So writing under the gun, though, do you feel like that perhaps accounts at all for any of his, um, you know, things like not, as you mentioned, like not looking out the window? No, I just think he has no interest in the natural world. Okay, yeah, that's and some people have mentioned that Dostoevsky is like more of a dramatist than a, a novelist. How do you feel about that? I don't know, I and mean, you can say that's true of Turgenev as well. Turgenev's novels 
six novels in the 19th century describing the climate of opinion beginning in the 1850s and going through the 70s. You can say that uh, there are scenes in Tolstoy's novel which lend themselves to dramatic performance. Uh, there's an opera from War and Peace. There's a ballet from Anna Karenina. I mean, these things lend themselves to other forms of art, but I don't think there's, I don't think Dostoevsky is a dramatist. His writing is dramatic, but I don't think it works. I've seen a couple of stage versions of his works, and I don't think they are successful. Yeah, I feel like the the dramatist label applies in the sense that he's, you know, in terms of his like scenery description, it could just be like a little blurb at the top of the scene, and then the characters start talking to each other. Uh, but he's not in the sense that if you were trying to stage any of these things, where, where people are going to, you know, 20 pages full of ideas and stuff like that, it's like, okay, well, this really doesn't work on the stage. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Do you, um, something like Karamazov, um, the first, the first book of his that I read that I really enjoyed was Crime and Punishment. And he, um, it's it, especially yeah, the the first hundred pages especially are just really snappy and quick and suspenseful, and he kind of had, as far as I understand, he used to read like a lot of like mystery novels as well. Is that true that he had, he got some inspiration from from that corner of literature? Yes, well, each one of his novels is really a detective novel. Yeah, uh, Crime and Punishment is not who did it. Who done it, rather, but why he done it? We know on the first page of Crime and Punishment that Raskolnikov is about to murder two old ladies, one old lady, and he happens to murder the other one because she's in the wrong place at the wrong time. But um, he, we explore for 500 pages why he murdered the two old women. And crime and punishment is also is really a who done it. We don't know who murdered Fyodor, father. Which of the three brothers is guilty? And it turns out that it isn't any of the three brothers, but the stepbrother who committed the crime. Yet they all accept responsibility for it because they all wanted to see their father dead in some manner or other. Yeah. And the stepbrother who is responsible, directly responsible, I believe he was epileptic in, in the Yes. Mm -hmm. And Dostoevsky was, was also famously epileptic and he had this gambling addiction. And some people have kind of suggested that like maybe his interest in these forms of like extreme um qualities of human behavior and and crime in particular come from his own sort of guilty conscience. Dude do you feel like that's on the nose? Well, I don't know his guilty conscience, but his own experience. Yeah. I mean, he's an epileptic, and uh, he in The Idiot, he describes the auras which precede an epileptic fit. 
and he describes the consequences of epilepsy. Uh, this is his own experience. Right. The, it seems like there, I don't know how, how deeply you've explored the epilepsy part of his, his uh, you know, his character, but it seems like there have been a number of sort of successful artists who have been epileptic, um, a lot of and successful uh, in a number of different fields, not just the arts. And there's something where I, I know people who are epileptic and they have this, a lot of them have this like intense religiosity um, which is common I, I, as far as I understand to people with epilepsy. Um, and I know it's, it's kind of one being epileptic doesn't make one a great writer. Uh, but certainly this had a huge impact on not just his characters, but the kinds of things he was interested in. Um, and a lot of literary critics sort of shy away from looking at like the the biography of the person who wrote it and like, Oh, I don't, I don't care about that. Um, but do you feel like it's his life and his work are just so intertwined that um, you, you almost can't do that with him? I agree. They're entwined, but you have to be careful. Uh, you can't make conclusions about his work based on what we know about his life. And we don't know all that much. That's what I said before. Um, he doesn't write an autobiography. Tolstoy wrote a massive autobiography. Yeah. Uh, Dostoevsky doesn't write a lot about himself. You get some letters, letters to his publisher and letters to his wife, which express his feelings. But um, it's hard to write a biography of him. Yeah, some some guy wrote a biography of him that was like five volumes or something like that. It's not a biography. It's Joseph Frank. Okay. Professor from Stanford. And um, it's a brilliant work. It's life and works. Okay. He goes back and forth between the novels and his life. That's as close as we come. I mean, if you want a biography, it's it also exists in a one-volume condensation. If you don't want to read all five volumes of it. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, like when, when you're, when you're translating, you said that, okay, the, the words aren't as important. Um, but ultimately you are choosing what words to appear in English. Um, mm -hmm. Do you, I, I guess, how do you approach that? Do you feel, do you look at yourself as like a co-author in a sense? I mean, um or or are you just like oh i'm trying to just get my mirror as accurate as possible well i think uh, a translator of the odyssey robert fitzgerald said it best from from my point of view he said that um he tries to give his readers an equivalent experience of that experience which he had when he reads it in the original so I read Karamazov in the original, and I it creates a certain feeling in me. And when I choose my words to put down on the page or on the screen, then I'm trying to give you the same experience I had when I read it. That sounds a little mushy, but I don't think I can be any clearer than that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
do do you feel like i mean is there are, are you do you have any translations in the works right now yes i'm working on a tolstoy translation tolstoy uh during the 70s between war and peace and anna karenina wrote hundreds of short stories for little children in order to teach them how to read there's an abc book and there are graded readers, four graded primers, he calls them. And he illustrates these primers with short stories. Some of them are based on fairy tales. Some of them are fables, including Aesop's fables, Hindu tales, uh, Russian folk tales. And he tells them in fairly simple language for young readers. And I'm translating those and working with an illustrator who will do some drawings based on the tales. Oh, that's great. I, I had no idea that he did that. They, there cool. are a few um, anthologies of those tales. The most famous one is called 23 Tales from Tolstoy. But there are really hundreds of them. And I'm making my way through them slowly and... Uh, in a few years, we'll try to publish the whole thing. Nice. I'm thinking of doing two separate books, one book of the whole corpus of his tales, and then one selected best tales for children. Yeah. And that would be the one that would have the illustrations. That sounds fantastic. When you. you. When you decide to translate something like Karamazov, um, whereas in this case, it feels like this hasn't really been done before. Um, well, what? in this case, where you're talking about Tolstoy's like tales, it feels like I'm at least I'm not aware of any uh, translation of all these, you know, hundreds of stories. No, uh, there aren't. Any. Yeah. So in, in that case, that makes, uh, you know, why one would translate that if you're a translator. I, I can immediately see why that, that would make sense um, for something like Karamazov. Um, it, there have been translations in the past. So do you, is the reason you translate it because you feel like there's something uh, inadequate about past translations? Yes. Um, and actually it's very strange, but there are only two big translations of Karamazov that existed before. One of them is Constance Garnett from 1913. And that's clearly archaic in its language, British in its style, and a bit old-fashioned. Also, she didn't know Russian as well as we know Russian now. And that's not to say me, um, but our knowledge of how Russian works has benefited from a 100 years of research and listening and writing about the language. So hers is somewhat outdated. And the other one is Kabir and Volokhonsky, uh, the famous pair. He's uh, English, I believe, and she's Russian. They're married and they work together and have translated a lot of things, including most of Dostoevsky. And I find their work too literal in its translation. He follows Russian syntax and makes few concessions 
to the English-speaking reader. I see translation as somewhere along a continuum, and at one end of the continuum is accuracy, and at the other end is accessibility. And every translator finds a point along that continuum where he's balancing off accuracy and accessibility. And I think they err towards greater accuracy, and the result is some stiltedness in their style. And I probably err towards greater accessibility looking for the American undergraduate audience as my primary target. Can you give an example of the, the stupidness in their translation? Not stupidness. I didn't say that. Oh, sorry. I, I thought I, I thought that's that's what I heard. Never mind. No, no, no. An example is um, the word rupture. Yeah. The the uh, the Russian word is nadrif, which means a tearing or a breaking. And three of the chapters in Karamasa begin with the word rupture, break, tear in, and then the place where the break is taking place. Constance Garnett uses the word laceration. And I looked high and low to try to find a different word and couldn't find it and consulted with a number of colleagues and said, I think I'm going to borrow the word from Constance Garnett. And she said, and they said, go ahead. That's the best one available. Kabir Volohonsky choose break, a break in the break in the, I don't have it here, the break in the garden, the break in whatever. Oh, in the laceration in the drawing room, laceration in the peasant hut, and in the fresh air. So Dostoevsky is using that same word, and it means a tremendous tearing apart of the spiritual world. And I think that laceration is the best possibility, best possible choice for it. It's not original to me, but that's okay. Translation I see as a collaborative enterprise. And if a predecessor comes up with a better word, who am I to reject the better word and use an inferior word just because I didn't think of it? I borrow it. Yeah, why not? Um, well, I, I'll say uh, closing here, I, I really enjoyed uh, your translations. Um, highly recommend them uh, for any Dostoevsky and beyond. Um, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat about the guy because he's uh, a fascinating uh, figure, complicated, um, but ultimately I, I really enjoy his work a lot um, and being able to do so through your translation. Um, Thank you very much. So, appreciate of course. Thank you to Michael Katz, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.